Hey, Jalen, you gonna have people checking their GPS, looking at Google Maps. Like, is this Gospel Hope Tabernacle of uh, Christ? What is this? Gospel Hope Church? No, no, no. Worship is welcome here. Amen. Spirited, tearful, makeup running, grown men bent over, right? Weeping, prancing, folks calling on the name of the Lord. Amen. Love that. Zach crying. <laughs> the modern day Jeremiah. Zach, put your hand up so they'll know who I'm talking about. We. <laughs> Zach, Zach lived, with, uh, lived with us for what, seven, eight months? I mean, just be like, hey, Zach, you know, sitting at the table eating dinner. Hey, man, pass the, pass the salt and pepper. Just, <sighs> Brother, just thank you for allowing me to just live here with you guys. <laughs> I'm like, man, can you just pass the... That's the pepper. <laughs> I'll be back, Pastor Ron. I just got to go to my room for a minute, you know. So I was like, all right, but no. And I love that brother and his, uh, his softness of heart and sensitivity to the spirit and his love for God's people. Amen. All right. Well, um, I am excited to uh, open up uh, another segment of... Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Some of you may be wondering, like, wait a minute, I thought we did 15 last week. How are we back here? Well, when we uh, did 15, we, um, it was just kind of a segment of scripture that we had overlooked uh, there in the, uh, in the schedule. No intent to ever skip this. And so we just decided to, to double back. Now, I tried to help it in the first service. I told people, you know how sometimes when you're watching like a Netflix series and you know, you're like, man, this is getting really kind of a heavy part of the movie. I'm getting, I'm getting lost. Let me, let me fast forward a couple of scenes and, and see what happened. And then you'd be like, oh, oh, that's the plot. I don't want to spoil it for myself. And then we kind of rewind and see what you missed. So I tried to set it up as that. But later in the service, you'll find out uh, potentially. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so we're, so we're here just in case you were wondering what's happening with verses 26 through 40. That's what we're covering today, uh, even though we covered 15 last week. But uh, uh, it's kind of awesome to get that sneak preview of where God was going and which was taking us right to the heart of the gospel in all of these conversations. Um, let's go before the Lord and uh, once again declare our dependency um, as we prepare um, to, to hear from him. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come this morning. Would you deliver us from routine? Um, would you uh, breathe on our traditions that they would not be stale, but that they would have fresh life? Would you open our eyes as we read your word? Would you open our ears as we hear it? Would you open my heart as I preach it? Would you be with us, O oh God? Would you be with us? And would you be with us in a way that matches exactly how you desire to be glorified and for your people to be edified, built up, perfected, made more like your son, Jesus Christ, and, more, and made more ready for the mission you have for our lives, collectively and individually, where you have given us grace. Lord God, for the, for the, for the believer, uh, Lord God, that's in the room, I pray, oh God, that our hearts would be uh, more deeply enriched in our connection with one another. For the unbeliever in the room, oh God, I pray for conviction that can only be wrought by your Holy Spirit that will result in conversion in the new knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Lord God, for the visitor um, that doesn't know exactly where they fit, Lord God, may they be found in this message, find fresh confidence in connecting more deeply with the local body. For the person, Lord God, that has been burned and hurt in the past by church and has chosen for years to sit on the bench and maybe just be watching from home who said, I'll never set foot in one of those places again. Lord God, would you reach that person? Would you repair, Heavenly Father, their confidence in you? Not their confidence in men, but their confidence in you. And their confidence in you, O oh God, would win their hearts to be reconnected with your people. Lord God, would you show us mercy and quiet our anxieties as we uh, look at stats and numbers and we think about, Lord God, where we are on the ultimate trajectory of the pandemic. And may our faith remain consistently in you, regardless, Lord God, of the potency of vaccines or in the functionality of mass that we find or purchase, Lord God. We, Lord God, let our faith first be founded in you and then through whatever faculty you want to show your mercy, whether it be therapeutic, miraculous, or medicinal, Lord God, let it be done according to your will. But Lord God, let our faith be fully found in you. Lord God, help us this morning. Help us, Lord God, to see you. We reach for you. We, re we believe, oh God, um, the song that you hold it all together. And Lord God, if we don't believe it, we sure do want to. And Heavenly Father, whatever parts of our hearts are struggling to, to grab hold of that, Lord God, would you reach in and, and uh, just help us in our unbelief. So Lord God, help us now. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, all right. So just to kind of get you ready, if you have... Uh, Real quick, if this is your first time with us here at Gospel Hope, if you're, if you're a guest, I'm not going to ask you to make you stand up and say your name or anything. If, you're, if this is with you, if you're visiting with us, it's your first time, hey man, I see that hand, I see you, yes, amen, yeah, boom, boom, boom. All right, praise God. So again, for your benefit as well as others so that you are mutually edified along with the rest of us, we have been trekking through the book of 1 Corinthians for like two distinct seasons. We've been going through a series entitled Messy. Reason it's entitled Messy is because from chapter 1 all the way to now, chapter 14, we see a group of people or some of the messiest folks that, whose lives can ever be portrayed or depicted in the Bible. Um, you would think, again, you are watching back-to-back -back episodes of something off of Netflix, some of the things that are going on. Uh, varying degrees of idolatry, sexual impropriety, uh, abuses of the very things that God is doing amongst them. But in every page, page after page, not only is God giving them kind of some direct insight through the Apostle Paul on where they've missed the mark, but also giving them grace and trying to pull them along and help correct their view to help redeem and help bring them around. As we've been working through the text, again, calling it messy, one of the areas that this particular church has really messed up uh, is the area or the conversation of the gifts. Somebody say they are not alone. They are not alone. The gifts and the whole conversation around them have even been messed up today. And so glory be to God that he would give us this very vulnerable expose. He would open the hood on the first century church and allow us to see a group of people who are just as messed up as many of us are in the modern day when it comes to this particular topic. I remember as a child sometimes wishing that I had been born during the biblical era because I used to say to myself, man, my faith sure would be stronger if I could see Jesus pull coins from the mouths of fish. If I could see, you know, stuff fall off the eyes of blind folks. But then I look at a text like this and I say, oh, man, these folks are just as messy as we are. And they had a live up front, front row seats with all of these full demonstrations of the spirit. And their faith is still rough around the edges and need to be updated. I'm good with being born in 1973. Quick math, quick math. Amen. Amen. So 
so with that, we're working through this series entitled Messy, and we want to learn something from the lives of people who are ordinary folks, just like us. No perfect saints on the pages of these scriptures, people whose lives are fraught with all kinds of holes and difficulty, but yet they are indeed our brothers and sisters in Christ, saved out of some of the same stuff that we've been saved out of, and God did not forbear to give them gifts. As a matter of fact, the Corinthian church is inundated, absolutely saturated with virtually all of the manifestations of the Spirit as it would appear from what we're seeing here. When we arrive at chapter 14, the Apostle Paul has introduced the gifts two chapters prior in chapter 12, and then he uh, uh, breaks into this thing about talking to them about love because that seems to be missing from the way that they leverage the gifts. And then he steps into chapter 14 with this very specific and tactical address of some areas where they are really getting the gifts twisted, where they're really messing things up. Uh, and so as we make it to the latter half of this particular chapter, um, you've kind of heard uh, some of the words, but I really want to kind of lift off the page a few ideas from this topic. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Now, you know what that means. Sometimes when you have to tell somebody to watch their mouth, it's not because they have necessarily said something that is bad, but maybe the tone or the way. It's not that, it, that there's anything wrong with the fact that they have a mouth, but they need to watch how they're using it. Well, we know that, the, first, that the, the Corinthian saints were infatuated with the speaking gifts, right? Tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, and all those things. They loved those particular manifestations. And as a result of it, they need to be told in a very spiritual and mature and encouraging way, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Watch how you're using these gifts when you are in the gathering. To help us more fully appreciate what I believe God would have us to know about this whole idea of watching your mouth, I want you to imagine for a moment, maybe you've got two kids that you've been called to watch. You're babysitting, or maybe you're one of them. But let's just say for a moment, uh, two kids left uh, in their rooms to play silently, quietly. Uh, as you walk down the hall, as you peep in on them, you notice that they open up two enormous bags of Legos, right? Three bags of Legos, from all, yeah, Peyton, I see you, bro. Uh, well, all kinds of different sets, just Legos. And as you hear them kind of make that sound as they shill out onto the floor, you can't do anything but shake your head because you know when you come back, you're going to see nothing but a total and complete mess. Just all these piles of little plastic blocks that are so indiscriminate, but for some reason, kids love them. A few hours pass by, and you don't hear any noises coming from the room. No giggling, no laughter, just total silence. You get scared because you know these kids. You go down the hall and you fling the door open, and there before your very eyes, the two children are sitting, working diligently, and they have completed a four-and-a-half-foot uh, replica of the Eiffel Tower in Lego blocks. And you expected to come in and see a mess, but in reality, you end up being mesmerized. Why? Not because... You've never seen the Eiffel Tower, uh, but, but you're mesmerized because you're wondering how in the world that these two messy kids who leave these things everywhere managed to build this. You're mesmerized because you know that they didn't do it of their own accord, by their own strength and by their own power. You're even looking at how high it is. They're three and a half feet tall. How did they build something four and a half feet tall? 
You look at the level of, of detail and how these things are being put together, realizing that these are three or four or five different Christmases and birthdays, uh, a party's worth of Legos. How did all of this come together in such a beautiful way? They went from messy to being mesmerized. It is my belief that as messy as the Corinthian church is with all of their giftedness, that when they come together properly, that is exactly the, the impact that God wants to have on his people. That we would see mess and be mesmerized when we watch how he puts it together. And people would look at our lives and the way that they come together. We would look at the Corinthian lives and we would say, oh my goodness, as messy and as undisciplined and seemingly unfaithful as those folks are, the Lord seemed to snap them together in such a way that builds something that lets everybody in the room know this is bigger than us, it is beyond us, and it was done by somebody other than us through us going from messy to mesmerize. As we think about this idea of moving from messy to mesmerize, I want to call us into really the heart of what today's text is about. There's two major appearances of the Lord himself in the passage as the Apostle Paul shares with us uh, about this. I want to just kind of read some of it to you, and I'm going to put some special emphasis on a couple of words that I want to bring to your attention. It says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let those things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and in turn, let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let him keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For if you, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophet. For for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is so powerful because in the midst of all this conversation about the gifts and how they come together and the impact that they're supposed to have on the congregation, Paul does not leave us with a lot of little bit of a doxology or reasons to worship God. Because it isn't just about the gifts and how they engage, but it is how these gifts give glory to God. You see, when we go from messy to mesmerized, when we see how the gifts come together, it should tell us a story, and this is the story, that proper use of your gifts reflect proper views of your God. The way our gifts come together should give a clear view to both those the gifted and for those the onlookers from the outside should give us a clear and a proper view of God, that he is a God of peace and not a God of confusion. And so as we look at today's text uh, further and more deeply, I want to remind you of some other conversations from around the scriptures regarding the gifts. One of the first of those is found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. It says, it says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Now there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I know I didn't read that slowly, but I hope you saw this. In that short introduction of the gifts and their varieties, there are three appearances of the Lord. The spirit is there, the son is there, and so is the father. You see, a proper use of the gift shows a proper or reflects a proper view of the Lord in this way. It is the Spirit who gives the demonstration, but it's the Father who has made the distribution, and then it is Christ's body that is being developed. Every time the gifts are properly deployed, the, the fullness of the Godhead is in view. 
It is the spirit who gives that demonstration. It is the father who gave that distribution, right? He's the one who, who, who distributed to this church the specific suitcase of outfits and gifts that he thought was necessary for this time and place for us, as well as he did for the first Corinthian uh, uh, saints. But, and then it is all, though, all the gifts are for the development of the body of Christ. So the whole Godhead is in view. And this is why a proper use of the gifts also reflect a proper view of our God. This idea of giving a proper view of God is important because if you remember from the tail end of of the previous text that we read a few weeks ago, it says when when the church has come together and an unbeliever is in the midst and if everybody is speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter or there's all kinds of cacophony going on, which is the opposite of symphony, if there's all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of disorder, the unbeliever will come in and say, are you not mad? Have you not lost your mind? However, if there is order and there is prophecy and they can understand what is happening or tongues that have been interpreted, that person is convicted, their hearts are exposed, and then they are brought to a place of worshiping God, meaning they go to being mesmerized. Not with us, because what what does the scripture say will happen? They will say, surely God is amongst those people. So when the gifts are engaged and deployed, that's the result. We want the body to be built up, and we want the testimony of God to be effectively backed up. But let's read more slowly and carefully a couple of these verses, beginning with verse 26. Pay close attention. What then, my brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation Let all things be done for building up. Now, this is quite interesting because when I look at this text, Paul enumerates a series of very interesting gifts, all of which have a speaking dynamic. And he does not forbade or forbid any of them from being expressed. He simply calls them upward in the way they use the gifts, that they would be used in such a way that everyone would be built up. This particular passage reminds me of the simple fact that no matter what gifts we have, if they are used properly, God is always building something. And we ought to be co-laborers with him in, the, in our pursuits to build one another up. It tells, us, it tells me in verse 26 that it is possible for a church to be spirit-led and orderly operated. It is possible for a church to be spirit-led and yet orderly operated. This sounds like an overly simple point until you compare it to the modern day dynamic where people right up and down the street looking at the banners and the marquees and the websites and the podcasts and samplings of the worship trying to find a spirit-led church. And the idea of a spirit-led church is one that has a loose agenda in some cases. I want you to be very clear that there is no tension between being spirit-led and orderly operated. Don't take my opinion for it. Look carefully at the words of Scripture. Do you remember the very first time the, the, the Apostle Paul introduced us to this list of gifts that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to the local church? It was in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Listen to these words. And he gave some to be apostles, uh, uh, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, for the building up of the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, what's interesting about this verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, is that he restates the exact same list of gifts to the Corinthian church in chapter 12. But let me read this for you and see if you notice a difference. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Notice that it is almost a proverbial cut and paste from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. But the apostle Paul decides not to just list the gifts, but to also assign to them order. First apostles, then prophets, then the work of the, uh, the, the, the teacher and the pastor, then miracles, and then gifts of healing. Why? Because he's got a church that is saturated with the gifts, but somehow not operating with order. So this whole idea is how does he get them to understand the same thing that the Ephesian saints understood about the unique gifts that God had given, but use them in an orderly way that builds up the body. And so we know that it is possible for a church to be both spirit-led and orderly operated. Imagine, if you will, if you uh, came over to a, a building site and you saw the plans, you know how they illustrate it, like what's coming next. Like we got a quick trip coming up by our house uh, 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 sometime soon, and they have that little kind of little sketch of it there. And, and you just see, you know, this open land with, with uh, virtually nothing going on other than just kind of a crane just kind of sitting in that waiting position. What if you just saw men and women just with barrels and truckloads of bricks just running out there, just kind of dumping them in the middle every day, just piles of bricks, piles of bricks with no particular arrangement? You wouldn't be impressed by what's happening. But you would be impressed if you saw this massive foundation, but yet each brick was being layered in a way that it perfectly fit the one before it and the one after it, as to produce a final edifice that we could all occupy and use. This idea of laying bricks in an orderly way is one of the most profound reasons that we should believe that God is building a church in that same way. The bricks are not just being randomly thrown into a pile. He is, we are being built up. The Bible beautifully gives us this body analogy and this building analogy for a reason so that we can understand the unique sacredness of this building that we have all become a part of known as the church. I want you to see something else, though, in the scriptures. This idea not only that, that God endorses order in the way that he enumerated first, second, and third, and then, and then, in the way that he talked about the gifts, but we also, I want you to see that God enforces order. If you remember and are familiar with your Bibles, multiple building projects have been taken on by God's people, the very first of which was to build a tabernacle. God gave them assignment on how to build a place where he would meet with them when they would sacrifice to him. But if you notice when you're reading your Bibles, these are the places where you want to fast forward, skip, skim, and not read that much. Because every time there's a building project, you see painstaking detail. God telling them what kind of hammer, what kind of rock, what kind of wood to get from what kind of place to, to, to have in a certain kind of measurement. And we all want to blow past that part of the Bible because we don't even know what a cubit is. And we say to ourselves, I am never going to be given a gospel hope uh, building project that requires me to build a miniature version of the tabernacle. I skip that. But what you're also skipping is a clear indication in Scripture that God loves detail. 
and he also loves order. I hope your souls are blessed. You'll go back and read the book of Leviticus nice and slow. <laughs> but God's order, his commitment to order is a big deal. Look at the tabernacle. Look at the temple. Go to 1 Kings chapter 5 on your own time and chapters 5, 1 Kings chapter 5 through 9. This is the entire stretch where Solomon is building his great temple before the Lord. This is an awesome enterprise and all this different kinds of woods and only certain types of people and only certain types of hammers that can be used. But then you fast forward and the, the, obviously the, the temple needs to be built again. And there's all of this specificity for those of you that are going to have to take the SAT soon again. There's all this specificity around how the second temple ought to be built. And then you come into the church and God does the same thing. He causes people to build in an orderly way. But this time, it's not physical bricks and hammers. It's people that are being built together. So God has always been about the business of order. But what I found to be most chilling about the Old Testament pattern of how God called his people to put things in very specific orders is that he refused to occupy the structure unless it met those specific criteria. It wasn't until they completed it and ordered it in a way that he outlined that the Lord felt inclined to come there. And he would always give the preamble. I want you to know that this is not some birdcage. This is not some house that you're going to keep or trap me in. This is not a box. I'm not your pet. I am, I am gracing you with my presence because I want to hang out with you as my people. But he wouldn't come unless it was done his way. Today, it's the same the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the Lord does not occupy temples made with men's hands, but he does occupy the gathering of his saints when our lives are properly layered together. This is what he is building in the modern era. And so it is possible for a church to be spirit-led and orderly operated. But not only is it possible, it's actually critical or else God won't show up. Because he is not the God of confusion, but he is the God of peace. So I'll just finally say this on, on this note. Not only does God endorse order, but he enforces order in the way that he chooses to show amongst his people when things are done right. And it, but, uh, we were going to say that uh, being spirit-led and orderly operated are a complement to one another and not in competition with one another. I, I, I want to share that with you, and I want, to, I want you to just soak in it for a minute because I, I, I want you to completely dismiss from the cultural narrative that somehow agenda is the opposite of spirit-led. That, that, that in order for a church to be truly spirit-led, there must be some free-for-all time and space set aside for the spirit to have its way. And we run loose and knock over chairs and whatnot and say, man, the spirit came here today, didn't he? That's not the biblical portrait. That's not the biblical portrait. And I'm not making fun of gifts. Notice that neither I nor Paul am pointing fingers at the, at the, at the beautiful compliment or the, the, the gifts that God has given. What we're talking about is a call to order over chaos, over disorder, over self-serving agendas. There's more in the passage. You got to see this. Looking at verses 27 through 33, it says, And if any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn, let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. 
As you go out throughout this list, the Apostle Paul outlines that if, 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 if the modus operandi, if the goal of the day is to be a church that operates in order to, to the building up of the people, then there's a certain methodology that must follow, right? Notice that he, he says that if you've got a tongue, okay, let there be you know, two, three at the most, but even have them to come aside and let what they're talking about be heard and then evaluate it. And, if, and so remember, tongues plus interpretation was equitable to prophecy because it was in the localized language. And then prophecy, even though it was in the local language, was not just turned loose on the congregation. It had to be evaluated over to the side according to the scriptures before it was, and someone had to weigh in before it was then released to the larger congregation. So this is, the, the, the gifts are on full tilt. But there's no one running up, snatching mics, and saying, I have a word from the Lord in the middle of my message. So, what are we saying here? Not only is it possible for a church to be spirit-led and orderly uh, operated, but it's also pivotal that our motives and our methods mirror the heart of God. So our motive can be to build up the church, but sometimes our methodology can ruin that. I won't suggest that every single person in the Corinthian church was just on some kind of uh, uh, ungodly agenda. I believe there were people who really wanted to, to edify and build up the body, but their methodology was off. I mean, they're not alone. You and I have always been people who probably know the difference between intent and impact. How many times have you said something to a spouse or a family member, a friend, a coworker, and they completely, the way it impacted them was completely different from what you intended? I mean, we are just creatures who miss it when it comes to bridging the gap between intent and impact. But the intent of the gifts in the church has to be to build up and then to also create a, 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 a backup, if you will, a, 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 local, a local declaration to the world that this is what our God is about. There are many episodes in scripture of people missing the connection between what they intended to do or motive and how it impacted others, and that is the, the methodology. One of the foremost is Saul, Israel's first king. In his first military campaign by God to go and to sack the Amalekites and to bring back none of the spoils, he decides after the war to bring back spoils. He has a great idea. His intent is to honor God. And Samuel meets him on the road and says, what did you do? You were, you were told not to bring back any of the spoils of war. And he says, well, I figured I would do the Lord a favor and make him a nice sacrifice. Awesome intent, terrible impact, because that day he was stripped of his kingship. And so we know that, that, that there's a tendency of us to want to do good things, but sometimes the method and the motivations don't fully connect. God wants to help us to safeguard against that with these words. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2, it says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. We are constantly asked to, to look at our methodologies and see if they are or oriented around the heart of God. Am I trying to build up? Or am I trying to be, you know, uh, 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 am I trying to be puffed up? Am I really interested in the edification of others? So in verses 21 through 28, we, let's, here's the deal. If my motive is to build up, then sometimes my method will to be to button up or to shut up. That's kind of hard, to button up, to be quiet, right? I mean, if you look at verse 27 and 28, here's what it says. He says, if, there's, if somebody has a tongue and there's no interpreter, no mas. No must. Talk to God and talk to yourself. 
but not in the church. That's what, that's what the Bible says, right? It's not me. It's not my policy, right? So sometimes to edify the body, if my motive is to build up, then I have to be willing to button up, to be quiet. In verse 29, it says that if the prophets are speaking, let, let two or three of them go, but let them go in sequence. And when they go in sequence, let what they say be weighed by others who also have the gift. Let it be weighed. And when it's weighed, and what that means, and it says, now, if, if someone says something, and someone, if, if one of the prophets is saying something, let the other one be quiet and let him also learn. So if my motive is to build up, then I also have a methodology to be patient and to be accountable. This is what my method looks like. I can be patient and accountable. This is, I'm going somewhere. You're going to feel it in just a moment. In verse 31, if my motive is to build up, then sometimes I need to be a student. I need to sit down and I need to listen. It says that some of the prophets need to listen and learn while others are yet evaluating. If my, if my motive is to build up, then my methods need to include self-control. Where do I get this from? Look at what the Bible says. It says in verse 31, or in verse 31, for all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion and peace. So again, let me just speak very carefully uh, uh, to this. What that passage just said is that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Whatever gift or manifestation it is, that an extemporaneous, ecstatic moment of uncontrolled activity to which you say you have been taken over by the spirit and couldn't help yourself, and we throw the chairs back and say, let him have his way with you, that's not of the Lord. That's not order. That's not order. It says that if, if you feel like you got a word from the Lord, that there's an orderly way to do it. So let's talk real quick, Gospel Hope. If, if the Lord, in his sovereign demonstration of his power, chooses from the menu of his uh, gifts that are beholden to him, chooses that there be a manifestation of the Spirit, whichever one he chooses in our local church that happens to be one of the speaking gifts, right? Whatever the Lord is, is going to do, your first impulse is to ask yourself, is this, in, is this in English? And your second impulse is go, do I have the gift of interpretation? Your third impulse is, do I know somebody who has it here? And if you answer no to the two subsequent questions, that word is for you. That ain't for me. It ain't for, that's for you. Right? Now, if, if the Lord, if the Lord in his sovereignty, on his time, on his sequencing, chooses to let there be some manifestation, once again, what prophecy, you feel like you got a word from the Lord? We are up here doing our thing. Jalen is over here. It's our nerve, you know, <laughs> doing his thing. And you feel compelled to go grab the mic? That ain't the Lord. You, you, you feel like you got a word from the Lord? You need to come and talk to me or to Ryan. I believe that the Lord would have me to share something. Talk to me, brother. Let's weigh that. Oh, okay. Okay. He wants you to set up four lines of $1,000 each? That's no. That's not for here. That's for... <laughs> Sorry, your GPS is off. <laughs> right? So, so, so again, there's, there's, there's an order to it. And I hope... I, I know we're being a little bit, you know, lighthearted, but I'm just reading to you what the Bible says, right? So, so again... Regardless of where you may fall on you believing that this will ever happen, can happen, or should happen, we know that if it does happen, that the Bible has given us a clear rubric. Clear rubric. Come see someone that this word might be, might be weighed and evaluated. And so the gifts that God has given to the local body, first apostles, prophets, uh, teachers, 
So, right, regard whether you view one of us as a prophet or you view one of us as an apostle or as a prophet, at least you view us as number three, pastor teachers. Come see us with whatever this thing is that you feel so moved and compelled to share. And we will let you know because we are then held accountable for the teaching diet. We'll let you know whether or not this is for mass edification or whether or not that's for your edification. That's beautiful, but I think that's for you. Could be the answer. Right? Amen. Amen. So, uh, thank you, Travis. Was that you? Amen. All right. Voice recognition software activated. So, verse 33, the goal of every gift is to build up the people of God and to back up the testimony of God, right? Again, we want to build people up, and then God says that he is a God of peace. We want that to be modeled and typified in the way that any gift is expressed in our midst, right? So, then verse 34, let's, let's keep moving here, because there's a tough one here. Uh, let's read this. We're not going to skip it. Uh, as in all the churches... The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for this is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So this is a great exercise in understanding language and context. Now, you do remember, if you've been walking through this series with us, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul said that if a man and or a woman... Are, pro- are prophesying or praying. One should have their head covered and the one should not. So in this moment, so, so in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul established some clear framework for what should be happening with your head if you have the gift. So this is not a gag order. This is a call to order. There's obviously ha- something happening within this local context where people, during the time of either weighing in or evaluating what is being spoken, are asking questions in a way that offer a chaotic moment or a disruption to what is happening. You've seen us right here at Gospel Hope Church have, uh, we had Trisha on the stage sharing in a moment of order, right? Sharing, edifying the people. So this is not, again, a prohibition on the gift. This is a call to order, not a gag order on the cistern uh, in any way. Is cistern a word? Amen. Yes, it is. How words? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Again. Mm-hmm. Order. I appreciate you listening to me. Yep. Amen. And so, when we, so, so as we move there, so we understand that the, the, the larger halo of the text here is how do we pursue optimal order so that all are being edified in the local church. Now we try to kind of turn the corner here and take a look at verses 36 through 40. It says, or was it from you the word of God came? Rhetorical question answers, obviously no. Are you the only ones that were, that were reached, that it is reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual or, he, has, uh, or, or and he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you are a command of God. So in other words, if you really do have the, the gift of prophecy, the Holy Spirit is at work within you and should be able to identify the words of truth, the commandments of God. The, 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 the commandments of, of the Old Testament show a very clear pattern of how the Lord would use them in the lives of God's people. But if there was anything the prophets were, they were anchored and grounded in God's word and knew that the litmus test was to recognize with this when, when something was really coming 
coming from God. And so the apostle Paul says, if the gifts are really authentically working amongst you, you should recognize the words that I'm saying as being from the Holy Spirit. This won't be an alien word to you, even if you've never heard it before, because you know that it's coming from the Spirit, if you really have the gift of prophecy. The Bible goes forward, forward to, to, to show us that, that if the word is working amongst them, that, that not only will they acknowledge the word that he's speaking, and that anyone who, that, that, who doesn't rec, uh, uh, recognize this, these words of the canon of man or the Lord, that they are not recognized to be recognized as a prophet. But then he goes on to say, so my brothers earnestly desire prophecy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. In this final text, I find it quite um, interesting, compelling, shocking that, that a holy God would speak his words to such an unworthy people. I mean, in all of this, I mean, uh, again, if this was a work team, they would be fired. Y'all completely messed this up. If these were kids with, with laptops, they would be taken. Y'all screwed them up. If this, was, if this was any other enterprise with any other human boss, the, 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 they would just fold up shop and say, we're not doing this anymore. But as messy as these people are, God is still committed to allowing unworthy people to handle his holy word. Not just handle it in terms of a Bible, but actually allow them to speak it. Because in the absence of a completed New Testament canon, that's exactly what was happening amongst them. So the holy God speaks to unworthy people, and this is a powerful thing for us to behold when we look at the close of this text. I want you to note the unique and special role that prophets played throughout the scripture. Number one, their, ro their role was to point out sin. When they rolled into town, they would say, this doesn't match what, uh, the expectations of God. They would warn against impending judgment if people didn't move toward repentance. But they would also console people with the promises of God that he had made at times past that they may have forgotten. But all, best and not last, but best and last but not least is this. Prophets came to increase anticipation for the coming of Christ. I mean, if a person has a word of prophecy and it doesn't uh, uh, generate in me a new appreciation for God's promises and the coming of his, of his son, I got to ask the question, is that really prophecy? Because that doesn't match the pattern that we see in Scripture. And so, God, though, has a history of allowing his holy word to be handled or even spoken by unworthy people. Let me give you a few examples. It was Moses who God commissioned, called, recruited, met face to face with and told him to go and deliver his people. And over and over again, Moses said to God, not me. I don't have great speech. You could surely find a better orator. I don't want to speak your words. Do you have to use me? Over and over again until the Lord finally just rebuked him and said, don't talk to me about this again. Totally unworthy to be used by God, but God used him anyway to speak his words. Jonah, a man who, when God called him to do something, he literally jumped ship, no pun intended. He jumped ship to try to escape the assignment that God had for him to go speak his words to the Ninevites. Not only Jonah, but Gideon. One of the judges was approached by an angel saying, hey, mighty man of valor, God has an assignment for you. He was like, not me. I'm the smallest in my household in one of the smallest tribes. I'm totally unworthy. And this is perfect. Go get you some people and let's go to battle. 20,000 people. Note, shave that down to 300. Totally unworthy. God wants to specialize in using unworthy people to handle his holy word. But why? Jeremiah, a great prophet. 
I mean, just a deep, deep preacher, but a man who in all of his great handlings of God's word often lacked joy and known as the weeping prophet. Elijah, a man who was able to, I mean, call down great supernatural works from heaven immediately after that very event, ran in fear for his life and faithful, faithlessness. A holy God has been constantly in the business of using unworthy people. Why? Here's a clue. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Peter, we are told that God specializes in taking peculiar and unworthy people who walked in darkness and and deserved absolutely no mercy and using them as his royal priesthood, his chosen people to do his particular work. God specializes in taking the unworthy and giving them holy assignments as an expression of his mercy. And so it should not surprise us that God would take the messiest church in town like the folks at Corinth and still commit to gifting them and using them and working through them. Because when we all turn around and see that Eiffel Tower replica that has been built by these completely incapable people, we end up going from seeing their mess to being mesmerized by the God who's working through them. I want you to understand this. When you look at individual Lego pieces, they by themselves are nondescript. Surely they have value, but in and of themselves, they are awkward. They are ordinary, and you don't even know what to do with them. As a matter of fact, when you see a Lego piece by itself, not with a set, you're often tempted to throw it in the trash. Because it doesn't look like it's good for anything. However, but a Lego set, a Lego piece, snapped together with others, begin to take on not only beautiful value, but beautiful purpose, and begins to show something that can only be seen in the hands of a master craftsman, who is the Lord. The Lord wants to use messy people. Not that they would stay messy, but because when he uses messy people to do something miraculous, when he builds people's lives together to do something that is bigger than them, that only he could do, it sends a clear message to all of us. You are encouraged when you see God obviously working through me. He is encouraged. We are encouraged when we see God working through one of us. It makes you say, God could work through me too. Pastor Ron is a regular dude. God works through him. Sheba is a regular gal. God's working through her. Right? God working through regular and ordinary people is a critical part of the testimony that he wants to send to the world that there is no one that is so messy, too messy, and too far away that he can't grab hold, pull close, and use, and make a part of his family. We're called to be a people who experience, and not only experience, but also model God's mercy. Do you understand what mercy is? Mercy is what is extended to a person whose current life trajectory deserves damnation. It is the, it is the, it is the, God not only in the the giving of gifts to mankind, not only has he he foregone not giving us damnation, but then he turned around and gave us some of the best of what he had to offer. God, by giving believers gifts, he didn't just say, don't worry about it 
and walk off and, and let us stay in our sin. He then turned around and gave us the manifestation of his spirit. You and I are working billboards, walking billboards for the mercy of God. We've got stuff that we do not deserve. We've got stuff that, that, that we, we should have deserved judgment, but God brought us into family and made us part of his building. We've all made messes of our lives in some way, but trust me, God wants to take that messy life and build it together with other believers into something that is mesmerizing to both you and I as well as to the rest of the world that they would be called and that they would be convicted to come see who this God is that can take these random pieces of different sizes, shapes, and colors that don't seem to connect in any real way and then he beautifully pieces them together. Our coming together is a crucial part of our witness and it's how our gifts bring us together that is a key part of that witness. And so I want to beg you, do not forbear the utilization of your gifts. But let's move and make sure that we're operating whatever gift we have and how we move, that we move with a responsibility to God's word. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you and we are thankful to you for your great grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord God, how in your Bible you give us, Lord God, the, not just the, the general, but you give us the specific and granular, Lord God, elements of your will how it is that you desire to work through your people when our lives are layered together properly you desire to occupy to show up and manifest yourself in a very particular and wonderful way and we ask oh God that uh, we would be a church that is grounded in you reaches deeply Lord God in your word but also, Lord God, uh, just remains open-handed with our faith for you to do whatever you desire to do. Let us be a church, oh God, that is spirit-led, but at the same time, greatly ordered. Let us be a church, oh God, that, that bridges the gap between motive and method, intent and impact. Let us be a church, oh holy God and Father. Let us be a church that, that you, could, you could mesmerize the world through in a way that you bring together powerfully people that otherwise don't fit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.